Hi everyone and welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Iron Institute. Today we are having another Q&A episode. This time we'll be talking about Iron uh, ethics. You have submitted your questions and today we, we are going to uh, answer them. We will be uh, talking about the virtues, about rationality, about the foundations of uh, morality and uh, ambition. My name is Zimut uh, Gowen, and today with me is Dan Schwartz. Hi, Dan. Hi, Zimut. So before we start, uh, there's a disclaimer. This is a pre-recorded uh, episode. So if you donate via Super Chat or ask questions, we will not be able to provide a live response. Uh, but of course, we appreciate any uh, support. So let's start. And the first topic that we want to talk about, the first question is on ambition. This question was submitted uh, by TriReason76. I presume it's a nickname. Uh, and TriReason asks, I would love to learn more about Ayn Rand's thoughts on ambition as, as it relates to one's career or central purpose in life. Dan? So the first thing I want to know is that ambition can be moral or it can be immoral. Uh, it depends on what you're ambitious for. Uh, so what does ambition mean? Ambition means uh, it's a character trait of going after challenging goals tenaciously. Um, you don't set your goals low, you set your goals high. If you achieve them, you increase the level of challenge and you keep going. Uh, the Rand actually has a definition of ambition uh, in an article called Tax Credits for Education, where she says it's a neutral concept and it means the systematic pursuit of achievement and of constant improvement in respect to one's goals. And we have a passage we want to share where she talks a little more about this from that article. Rand writes, but ambition as such is a neutral concept. The evaluation of a given ambition as moral or immoral depends on the nature of the goal. A great scientist or a great artist is most passionately ambitious of men. A demagogue seeking political power is ambitious. So is a social climber seeking prestige. So is a modest laborer who works conscientiously to acquire a home of his own. The common denominator is the drive to improve the conditions of one's existence however broadly or narrowly conceived. So it's a good thing to improve the conditions of your existence to work for that on increasingly challenging levels if you're correct in what you're evaluating as good and improving the conditions of your existence. And in general, ambition for the pursuit of any values is important. And in that same article, Rand goes on to say that ambition is important because life is a constant process of motion. That is in life, you're either moving forward in your life, growing, thriving more and more, or you're going the other direction towards death and things that are worsening your life. And what ambition can do is keep you moving in the right direction. So I think it's, it is very a very important value, not only in career, but elsewhere too. Now in career specifically, there is, I think, a problem with how people sometimes think of ambition. That is, people sometimes think of ambition in career as just being about uh, increasing your salary or just being about getting a promotion. And 
not that those are necessarily irrelevant, but often those are second-handed motivations, meaning that you're not just, you're not really seeking a pay raise because you've in a first-handed way evaluated that this is improving the conditions of your existence, but because you're thinking that this is kind of what you're expected to do or what's going to make you look good in other people's eyes or what your parents want out of you and so on. And I, I think a person who is properly ambitious won't be thinking that way. A person who is ambitious in the proper way are, is going to ask questions like, how do I actually make my job better? All things considered. Uh, is this really the job I want? Is this the job that's serving my life? Uh, and you know, increasing your pay might be one factor in making it a better job for you, but it's not necessarily the only one. I think you want to ask how your career is serving your other values in your life and work to change your career in whatever ways to make it better for you. Um, and Zima, I think you had some example of this uh, that you thought was useful. So an example of a person, so so in that quote uh, from Rance, she's, she's talking about social climbers who seek prestige. And I, I think a, a, a perfect example of that is Peter Keating from The Fountainhead, the novel, uh, and I also think that it's an example of an ambition that is immoral, uh, that is based on immoral motivation and and basically immoral goals. Um, so Peter Keating does everything to climb the ladder, uh, including destroying other people's lives uh, to just get the, the uh, prestige, money, fame, um, and and yeah and uh, as you said these are second-handed motivations um because for peter keating it's he's seeking that prestige uh because uh his sense of worth comes from other people and for those of you who have read the novel uh you know that he never achieves that sense of of uh, uh, worthiness uh, but Dan, so who would be a, an example of someone who, who is properly uh, ambitious about work and uh, career? Yeah, so uh, a good example of a properly ambitious person is from the same novel, Howard Rourke. Uh, if you've read the novel, you know that there is a scene where Rourke turns down a, a large commission that he desperately needs and ends up working in a granite quarry. Now, a lot of people might look at that and say Rourke lacks ambition, that the ambitious person would, uh, would you know, without stop, try to keep increasing his salary and without stop, try to take the next commission. But that's not the case because those actions would not fit Rourke's goals in his life. It would be a sacrifice to do that. So, what, so it may sometimes for a properly ambitious person be right um, to turn down work to take lower pay. It really depends on how the work fits into your vision for your life. Your point about other values is, is uh, important because in a way, being ambitious about career requires something that I think is more fundamental and it's being ambitious about values in general. And I, I think that there's a powerful uh, I have a powerful quote from uh, God's speech, quote, 
Your work is the process of achieving your values. And to lose your ambition for values is to lose your ambition to live. And so I take it to mean that that being ambitious about life, being ambitious to live, means uh, that you need to be ambitious about values. And the reason is that life is a process of, of constant value achievement. You pursue values throughout your whole life. And so even though work and career as such are crucial uh, values, they are not the only ones. And so uh, going back to your point, I, I, which, with which I uh, agree, um, you, your, your career should be both consistent with your values, but also dependent on being on your ambitiousness about life as such and about values as, as uh, such. Yeah, I have a personal example here, actually. So some years back, I was working so hard at my job as a professor, um, tended to be very long hours grading in particular, that my health was kind of going downhill just because I did not have enough time getting physical activity. Um, and I decided I needed to spend less time at work. I needed to take to reduce my hours and focus on other things. That is, I, and I don't think this is a lack of ambition necessarily. I, it was looking at all of my values and putting the value of work in context. And I think it can be perfectly appropriate to, because you're ambitious about other values too, as such as your health. Um, you know, you want to be able to do things like go on hikes and you want to be able to do things like move around your day pain-free to be ambitious about your other values and at least temporarily dial back your ambition in your career. Yeah, I think, yeah, thanks for that example. I, I really think it, it really shows what it means to be ambitious about life. Because if you if you neglect it, you're, if, you, if you didn't care about your health, you wouldn't be really ambitious about life. You would be taking, as you said, your career out of context as a as a value in itself that is not related to other values but it wouldn't be proper um and so we can say again that career as such uh without any relation without any relations to other values but also to 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 your personal interests isn't really proper and so I don't know about you, Dan, but I know some people who pursue careers, uh, for example, in law as notaries, um, and they, they don't really like their jobs. They don't like their careers as such. It's not that they, it's they want to be good in what they are doing. And so they are ambitious in the sense, but they are not properly ambitious because uh, because it's not based on their actual values and it's not consistent with their whole lives with their hierarchy of uh, values and they sometimes do it because they hold this view that career should be uh pursued regardless of the consequences like car career is like an intrinsic value for them sometimes it's because of of the pressure that they feel from, I don't know, their, their peers maybe, sometimes their parents, uh, sometimes it's about money. So I also know people who just say, yeah, I'm pursuing this career 
for money and after 10 years i may quit um and so it's not as we were saying it's it's not a proper way to think about uh career and so think about again about think again about work and uh kidding so Rourke's choices with regards to career were based on her most important values on the kind of buildings that he wanted to build the kind of world that he wanted to live in uh but Keating's values were based on the approval of other people uh his mothers his peers uh Tewis, uh, appro uh approval francons etc and so actually uh i think that had kidding been ambi uh, ambitious really uh and properly about his life and his values he would probably have chosen a career in painting so another point that i wanted to make that is related to rand's view of ambitiousness um Ambitious, uh, so Rand characterizes ambitiousness also as a character trait. Uh, and she says, she explains that uh, where she, when, when she talks about the virtue of productiveness and productive work. And so uh, in the objectivist ethics, uh, which is the first essay uh, in the collection, The Virtue of Selfishness, she says, quote, productive work is the road of man's unlimited achievement and calls upon the highest attributes of his character, his creative ability, his ambitiousness, his self-assertiveness, his refusal to bear uncontested disasters, his dedication to the goal of reshaping the earth in the image of his values." Unquote. Um, and so we can summarize that, again, ambitions ambition the concept of ambition is mutual in the sense that you can be ambitious for something that is not proper or you can be ambitious for wrong reasons uh but if you're ambitious but but it is by all means proper to be ambitious uh about your career uh if it's related to your values if it comes from your values uh and so in that sense it is both proper and moral okay and i think we can move on to our next question which is from steve and steve uh in his was questions a bit longer than this but he uh gives some description of a virtue in aristotle's ethics called practical wisdom and he asks what is the difference between rand's virtue of rationality and the Aristotelian virtue of practical wisdom. And I think Zimali, you want to start just by giving some background on what practical wisdom is in Aristotle's ethics. So in Aristotle's ethics, there are basically two kinds of virtues. Uh, there are intellectual virtues and there are virtues of character uh, that sometimes are, are called ethical virtues. Um, and so ethical virtues are virtues like courage, or temperance or justice and virtues uh, and intellectual virtues are virtues like practical like practical uh, wisdom and so the the ethical virtues the the, the the virtues of character are Aristotle understands them 
as certain dispositions to act and feel in some way in a given situation. Uh, and so, so for example, if I'm brave, I will feel in a certain way when I encounter a danger. Or if I'm a just person, I will feel certain way when I'm confronted with a situation where I encounter some injustice. Uh, but practical wisdom as an intellectual virtue is something that Aristotle thinks that we need for the ethical virtues, the virtues of character, uh, so that we can deliberate, del deliberate about what is the best course of action in a situation that we are in. So basically it means that for, for Aristotle, it's not sufficient to just have this, those, dispo those dispositions. But then maybe you could say a little bit more about practical wisdom. Yes. So without this role of that part of the mind uh, that is helping you deliberate about what to do, you can, according to Aristotle, have what he calls natural virtue. That is, you might just be born a certain way. But this is something. This is so. This does something children have. It's something, according to Aristotle, even some animals have. They just tend to, let's say you have a dog that tends to be generous in a sense that if it's around another dog, it's not going to hog all the food. But that's not really virtue. And it's also not really stable. That is, sometimes the dog will act that way and sometimes it won't act the right way. What we need in order to really, in a stable way, act so that we feel the right way and so that we choose the mean is phronesis, practical wisdom, and this is what is going to help us deliberate rationally about uh, what the proper uh, response is and what the proper action is. And that's what it sort of might turn this natural virtue you're born with into a fully developed virtue in the proper sense. And this is also how, you know, this is how we learn to be virtuous, say courageous or generous uh, at all. We, we, we deliberate and we figure out what the mean, what the kind of proper response or action would be. And we can use that deliberation to assess our failures, to become better, to also train our children um, based on what we think the proper um, mean would be. Yeah, and so in Rand's ethics, there's no such distinction. There's no distinction between kinds of virtues uh, between the in intellectual and ethical uh, virtues. Uh, for Rand, virtues are rather moral principles, not just traits of character, not just some dispositions that we have. And those moral principles are such that we need to follow them basically in order to achieve uh, values uh, to achieve uh, happiness, to live our to live our life, and here I would like to quote Rand again from the essay "The Objectivist uh, Ethics." Uh, so she describes here rationality as quote the recognition and acceptance of reason as one's only source of knowledge, one's only judge of values, and one's only guide to action. 
It means one's total commitment to a state of full conscious awareness, to the maintenance of a full mental focus in all issues, in all choices, in all of one's waking hours." Uh, unquote. And the, the crucial difference here is that Rand doesn't postulate, doesn't say that there's an additional virtue that adds reason or reasoning or rationality to other virtues. The virtue of rationality in Rand's ethics is we might think about it as an overarching virtue or as, as the master virtue from which other virtues follow. Or we may think about them as applications of the virtue of uh, rationality. And so Rand says that, quote, rationality is man's basic virtue, the source of all his other virtues. So again, there is no need for an additional virtue like practical uh, wisdom that we need to determine the best course of action in a situation uh, that we are that we are in. Um, now, probably uh, this this difference between virtues and principle as principles and virtues as dispositions is important here, um, because if we really re reduce the virtues. Uh, of character to dispo to dispositions, we as Aristotle does. Uh, we need that additional intellectual virtue, that practical wisdom, that can guide those dispositions uh, that we need to think about, that we need to use in order to think about the situation that we are that we are in. Yeah. So just pulling back, it, it is true reason. Uh, in some way is important to both Rand's ethics and Aristotle's ethics. And in both cases, reason has some kind of relationship to all of the virtues. But here's just one additional, I think, key difference uh, between how the, the place of reason in both. Practical wisdom, it's about deliberation. It's about finding the means to the end of your own flourishing. And, and that's important. But that is not that should not be separated from other aspects of reason. There, means and reasoning is not all there is to reason. Um, so Rand's virtue of rationality is wider than just thinking about means to the end of your life. Rand's virtue of rationality is about using your mind to grasp the world. And that's going to include grasping how to achieve a goal. But it also includes grasping anything about what's true, what's what is the truth of the universe and, and things in your life. Um, whereas for Aristotle, there's a different virtue entirely that deals with that. It would be, for example, the virtue of you know, wisdom, like a more theoretical wisdom. And those should not be separated because it's the same reason uh, that is grasping the truth in both cases. Okay, great. So we're uh, staying in this uh, area of virtues, and we have another question about them, this time from uh, Abdullah. Why did Ayn Rand name just seven virtues? And are those seven virtues exhaustive in her philosophy? Uh, could an eighth virtue be part of objectivism? So Dan, how would you uh, answer this question? Good. So yes, Rand named seven virtues in the objectivist ethics, rationality, productiveness, justice, and so on. And there's seven of them. 
She does not claim that they are necessarily exhaustive. She does not claim that there must only be seven and that an eighth could not be added. Um, one could propose an eighth. I can't think of an eighth virtue um, that is needed. Um, now, everything I think of is either not a virtue, meaning it is not universally good, um, that if you practice it universally, it would sometimes hurt you, or it's derivative in the sense that it, um, if you apply the existing seven virtues, uh, it kind of gives us everything we need to figure out um, this new virtue. Uh, so, for example, courage, uh, if courage means kind of defending your values, even in the face of some threat, um, that is universal or some difficulty or challenge. I think that is always good. Um, but what is, what is courage? Well, it's, it's really sticking up for your values, which is what integrity is all about. So you, you could, if you find it useful, talk about being courageous in certain situations, but uh, I think you sort of get everything you need with the virtue of integrity or, or thinking of courage as an application of integrity. Uh, then there, there are some things that are commonly thought of as virtues that I don't think objectivism would think about virtues at all. Um, they would be sometimes good and sometimes bad. Uh, for example, generosity. If we understand generosity as giving more than you're morally required to, giving more than is normal or customary in a particular situation, uh, maybe tipping more than you have to uh, because someone did good, a good job uh, and that sort of thing, or giving a nice present to someone. Um, well, that, that's sometimes a good thing, but whether it's good really depends. It depends on who you're giving to, why you're giving to them, and whether that really serves your other values. I think to decide whether to be generous, you have to consider the other virtues. That is, consider justice. What does the person deserve? Are you, are you hurting your life in some way because you're propping up someone who might actually do you harm later on? Um, you, know, you consider integrity, what your other values are, and being loyal to those other values, and so on. Uh, patience is something else I've also heard called a virtue sometime, and, and sometimes patience is important. But I think you have to ask uh, how being patient in a particular situation serves your other values, what kind, what level of patience someone deserves. I think sometimes people can uh, do things that kind of lose the the, um, the deservingness of patience. Um, and Zima, I think you had your own example of something you thought people sometimes think of as a virtue um, that you wanted to comment on. Yeah, so yeah, so I Google it, uh, and it's actually not the first time that I that I I'm encountering this example. Some people say that that fidelity or faithfulness is a virtue, so that you should be faithful to your wife, faithful sometimes I don't know to your to your country, and it depends on how you understand fidelity. Uh, whether it's always proper. So uh, we were talking before we started the recording. You gave you gave uh, an example of being faithful to your employer. But what if your employer is a bad person? What if he's irrational? Uh, and probably even sometimes when you are in a romantic uh, relation, when 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 
this other person becomes very toxic and destructive in your in your life is faithful is faithfulness or fidelity really something proper but even if we understood fidelity or faithfulness as staying faithful to someone who is a genuine value to you so we are excluding you know irrational em em employers or toxic people in your life then i would still think that it would be some sort of combination of application of justice because it's how you evaluate other people uh honesty because you are not cheating of course honesty is mostly about your relation to the world but it's secondarily it's about your relation to other people so so that you're honest to to them uh, as well and integrity and integrity because if you claim that someone is, is a value to you like your wife then you should stay faithful right um so yeah i i i also couldn't i couldn't find any eighth virtue but i, I think it's an it's it's an interesting intellectual exercise i would love to uh hear what people have to say i would love to see some comments if you have a a virtue that you think we could consider uh please just write down uh, a comment and we will see okay dan any last thoughts on that yeah there is another point here which is even if there's an eighth one that is in some way important to add consider this i have seen other ethical theories often these are aristotelian ethics or aristotle himself where you have a list of virtues that's you know numbers 12 15 16 and that is hard to remember like you are not it's, it's not something that is really as useful as a guide because you're, you're going to forget some of them and you're not going to really see how all of them relate to the key domains in your life. So seven is really a good number, not that it has to be exactly seven, but it's in the right ballpark for a number that you can remember and use. And I think you should have a good reason if you're going to increase the complexity. I, I think you should have a good reason for that because the seven that we have do cover kind of the main domains of life. It covers interactions with people, it covers your career, it covers uh, situations involving the truth and and those are it already covers all of the key domains in life I can think of um so it's not that you can't add one but I think you should have a good reason if you're going to increase the complexity um now just one point though if you want to propose an eighth or someone wants to propose an eighth virtue that would not be a part of objectivism even if it's right to maybe use it and add it um and Zima, you, you have a particular way you want to explain kind of why we wouldn't want to think of that as part of objectivism. Yes. So objectivism is something that Ron herself created. She created something, an, an entity, a philosophical system in this case, and she gave it a name, a proper name, which is objectivism. And so in this sense, this is her creation. And only she could add something to that creation. Um, so even if you if you propose a, a a different virtue which would be based on your understanding of objectivism and which would be 
if inconsistent with objectivism, it wouldn't be part of that creation for the reason that objectivism is something that Rand herself created. Um, and I think that there's, um, so there's a, a book written by a student of, of Ayn Rand, Dr. Harry Binswanger, uh, he published a book called How We Know. It's a, a book on epistemology. And he added, so in that book, he explains a lot of, a lot of uh, epistemological issues in objectivism. But, but he's also adding something from himself, something that is based on objectivism. Uh, but for but for the reason uh, that he is adding that he gave this book a subtitle, epistemology on an objectivist foundation. So you could say yes, I have identified an eighth virtue, and maybe we would all agree. Yeah, we need that eighth virtue. We 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 should identify it as as a as a principle as another application of the virtue of rationality. But it would be just uh, based on an objectivist foundation, on, on the foundation of Rand's uh, philosophy. Yeah. And we have a book that we would like to recommend. It's a book by Tara Smith called Iron's Normative Ethics, The Virtuous uh, Egoist. It's a great book i recommend it and there, the, uh, there is a part of this know. book uh where where tara smith uh deals with some of the things that people often consider virtues she does with kindness generosity charity and temperance and explains why we they're not virtues and how we should think of them um so look at, look at that in particular okay uh I think we're ready for our next question, which is from Joseph. So Joseph asks, the choice to live is pre-moral. Why choose life? Is it a matter of personal preference or arbitrary? Yeah, and so we will actually answer this question rather briefly. And the reason is that we discussed this, uh, this, this question, this, this issue in depth in one of our earlier Q&A uh, episodes. Uh, we'll later say uh, where you can find it. And so, so the first part of the question is about the choice to live. So we should start by saying what the choice to live is to understand it. So in God's speech in Atlas Shrugged, we read, quote, my morality, the morality of reason is contained in a single axiom. Existence ex exists, and a single choice to live. The rest, proceed, the rest proceeds from these. And so when we think about morality, so what is morality? What is the purpose of morality? Morality is something that should give us a, a code of values, a code of values that we need for our lives, that we need in order to make right choices, that we need in order to pursue goals, to think about what goals are good and how to pursue them. 
Um, and so basically from Rand's perspective, we need morality to live, to live. And, but living as God says, uh, in that, in that quote is a, is a choice that we have to make. And there's a very good passage in one of Rand's essays called causality versus duty in her collection philosophy who needs it where she explains what it means that morality is conditional so she says quote life or death is man's only fundamental alternative to live is his basic act of choice if he chooses to live a rational ethics will tell him what principles of actions are required to implement his choice if he does not choose to live nature will take its course so the choice to live is primoral is primoral in the sense that uh morality really is for those who choose to live is for those who want to live who who make that basic choice but now what does it really mean what what is this choice to live how does it look like Dan? Yeah, there's something misleading, I think, or that could be misleading in talking about a choice to live as if the choice to live is a one-time choice you make while sitting in an armchair before you're able to go up and get out of the armchair and do anything. That is, we choose to live in almost every moment of our lives when we go and we pursue the particular activities in our lives. That is, if you're choosing to go to work. Um, that is because you value your life typically, and you're trying to support your life. Um, and so, you know, this is a so sort of choice many of us have already made. We're not necessarily consistent about it. And sometimes we, we, we don't make that choice in some moments, but to the extent we do make that choice, it's what enables us to go about and live our lives. Um, it's, now, it's not like the choice between chocolate and vanilla ice cream. You're, you know, you go into an ice cream shop and you haven't made up your mind and they're just two equally good options. Um, if we, many of us have already made that choice and that's why we are living our lives um, to the extent we are. Um, and we've, we've been making that choice repeatedly and it is a choice you have to make and reaffirm over time continuously and we've been doing that many of us for a long time for perhaps as long as you can remember um the, what you do when you come to think about ethics is first of all you recognize that this is not a choice we have to make and there are some people who are not making it at all and it is a choice that you have to make deliberately and consistently make it the guidepost of your ethics um, recognize that some things move you towards life and some things move you towards death and you have to make your values consistent. And so they're all pointing towards things that will be life affirming, but it's something, it's not a choice. Again, you make it an armchair. It's something you have to think about and reaffirm over time in your activities. It's those activities of living that are what living a life involves. Yeah. And so Joseph also asks, why choose life? Why choose it? And so in a way, when we think about it, what, what it means to choose life, 
it means that you're choosing reality. And so by asking the, this question, uh, why choose life? We're, we're already in a way choosing reality. We're in a way, in some way, in some way valuing life because there would be no sense to ask that question if we were not choosing reality. Um, but it's not the case that the choice to live is, is groundless and there are passages in, in various essays uh, written by Rand where she talks about experience, experiencing uh, value, uh, life as a value. And so you can, for example, uh, you can contemplate great art. You can uh, feel the value of life when you're with the, the person that you love or when you achieve something in your, in your life, something that is perhaps related to your career or to, or to, your, dev, to, to your development. And so by living life, you're also experiencing its value. And for some people, these considerations are actually important because there are people, we're not gonna talk about it in more detail. It's a, it's, it's a more complicated issue, but there are people who actually need to ask those questions themselves. And, and sometimes it's very useful for a person to, to uh, think back, uh, to think about her experiences in her life, about her past or about experiences uh, that she will have. And those experiences are grounds for her choice to live. Um, but also there is this question that if we don't choose to live, then isn't morality uh, optional then? Yeah, I think the concern there is that anyone would be free to do anything they want if they just don't choose life. They don't care about it. They just, I don't want to live that. Okay, well, then morality doesn't apply to you and you can do anything you want. And it's important to note that is not the case. Um, we have a fundamental alternative between life and death. If you're not choosing life, the alternative is death and you do not need any guidance to get there. Um, so you wouldn't have morality if you really just say you're okay with death. Yes, there would be no morality, but there would not be some alternative way of acting. There would just be nothing and death will take its course. Um, and there would be no uh, reason except hatred of, of life and existence to do anything, go out there and do anything that's destructive, you know, robbing, raping, pillaging. That would be an alternative way of acting, but there would be no basis for that. Um, you don't need, it would just be stop acting and death will take its course. But I don't think yes. most of us so want that. I think most of us want life. Yes, yes. So, so an interesting example to think about is probably James Stoddard from Atlas Shrugged. I think he's, he's a, pers a person who, who doesn't really choose to live. Um, but, uh, so we have two resources to recommend about this, that are about this uh, topic. So the first is Dr. Peacock's book, Objectivism, 
philosophy of Ayn Rand, uh, chapter seven. In the chapter, Dr. Pikoff talks about values, about uh, objectivity, and also about the choice to live. And the second uh, resource is that Q&A episode that I uh, mentioned earlier. It's an episode with Ben Bayer and Mike uh, Matza that you can find at bit.ly slash best hyphen objections. Ben and Mike are discussing uh, the choice to live, but also some uh, arguments against that uh, conception. So we recommend that. Okay, let's move to our last question. And this comes again from Joseph. And uh, Joseph's question is, I have a once in a lifetime chance, once in a lifetime chance interview for my dream job, and I'm running late. And the interviewer is getting ready to leave. If I come upon a dying man in the street, should I stop and help? Zimowitz, what are your thoughts on this situation? Yeah, so I know that people really like those questions for some reason, uh, that there is some weird situation. And and we will and we will actually answer this this question. We will we will try to clarify it. And I'm not saying that this question is not a valid question because if you do something with that question, it can be it can be a valid question. But I wanted to say that it's important to keep in mind that asking such questions is not really the way to think about ethics and i'm not implying I'm, I'm i don't want to say that joseph is thinking about ethics in this way but a lot of people are and so because as i said as we said the purpose of ethics or morality is to guide us in our life is to provide a code a code of values that we actually can use in order to live um it's something that gives us principles but those principles those moral principles like the verses that we talked uh, about justice integrity honesty etc these are principles that we need in our everyday lives and but such principles cannot be derived from situations that are very exceptional or that are emergency situations uh, because these are situations that are not normal. They're not normal in the sense that they, if they happen maybe once in a lifetime, if at all. And so I think that it's, it's important uh, to say that even if we answer a question about an exceptional situation or an emergency situation, it doesn't give us a a new principle like for example in this case if we if our answer will be yes it doesn't mean that we now uh, have suddenly we we suddenly have to help every stranger that we can find and and actually there is there is a an example of a very famous philosopher Peter Singer who uh, who uh, proposed a scenario for people to think about we are uh, walking uh, by a pond and you see a drowning child and you can easily help a drowning child um, even if you have to let's say destroy your suit or your 
Today, maybe it would be your smartphone uh, because you would be in water. And so he's asking, well, what should you do in this situation? And for most people, obvious answer is we would help that, that child. Uh, and the problem is that uh, then Peter Singer says, well, but there are so many childs like this one, but they are just not next to you. They are all over the world. They're poor uh, children, children that, that are starving. And so if you agree that you need to help in this situation, then you need to help every other children in the world uh, if you can. Uh, but this is not the way to think about ethics. This, the, by using, but by by thinking about emergency situations or exceptional situations, uh, we cannot really uh, create a code or discover a code of values by which we can live. And so, on this very topic, so not on the topic of helping this man who is dying on the street while you're running to your um, for your uh, interview, we recommend uh, Ayn Rand's essay, The Ethics of Emergencies, that can be found in her collection, uh, The Virtue of Selfishness. But as I said, I'm not saying that Joseph is thinking like this about uh, ethics, and I think we can say something meaningful about this question. So, Dan, uh, how can we resolve this dilemma? Well, before resolving it or, or saying what I think you should do in this kind of situation, I want to point out, I think an additional problem besides this being an emergency or exceptional situation is I don't think it's a situation at all. That is, if we look at the description of what's going on, you have a once in a lifetime interview for your dream job, you're running late, the interviewer is getting ready to leave and you see this dying man on the street and how, you know, are you going to help? I, I don't know what to imagine here, what's going on. Um, I, I don't think there are words here, but I don't know what the words refer to in a lot of cases. So how do you know it's a once in a lifetime job interview? Uh, who, who can say that? Uh, how do you know the job interview is getting ready to leave? What exactly are you imagining you're going to do to help? Are you a doctor? Um, because I, there's nothing I could do to help besides calling 911, which doesn't really require stopping. Um, I, I could just call 911 without stopping. And so, but it seems like the question is written in a way to suggest that you're going to have to sacrifice something great in order to help, but, but why? Um, so I think the example needs to be, if you, if you, I mean, if there's a reason to ask it at all, maybe just you're curious still, I think you need to make the example more concrete, more real. So it's an actual situation. Um, and. And if we do that, if we kind of fill in the example and we say, well, uh, you know, it is a very important job to you and the job interview told you exactly how long he's going to give you. And, and let's say you can call 911 and it'll delay you three, three seconds to call 911. Um, you can consider those sorts of things. And what you could say is it is good, you know, if possible to give non-sacrificial help, help that's not going to be a sacrifice for you, then sure, um, you can do it. However, you know, in these kinds of situations, there is often a judgment call, and I don't think you would necessarily say you're morally required to help. Um, in fact, if I turn to a more real example, real because I actually saw the, a video of this happening, 
uh, where someone offered, I think, non-sacrificial help. This was a video of the fires recently in Hawaii, uh, which were terrible and seemed to swallow whole towns. Um, I saw a video of a man driving in his car to escape the fires. He saw a little patch of fire that was about to spread to another house. And he decided to stop his car and take a hose and put out the fire. And people are saying he probably saved that whole neighborhood. But I mean, think about it. That is, it was probably some risk to his life he took because he was delayed in getting out of that area. Um, in, in that fraction of a second, you can't possibly know exactly what the risks to your life is. So you sometimes in that sort of exceptional emergency situation, you can make a split second judgment call. I don't think you would say you have to put out the fire. You would, and you would not, you should not say that you definitely should keep going. You, all you can do is make a judgment call. If your judgment is, I can offer non-sacrificial help. I can save this neighborhood and with 99% certainty, I'm still going to get out fine. Then I think you have a you know, good option if you want to of putting out the fire. Okay, and I think that covers all of the questions we wanted to address this time. If we didn't answer a question that you submitted, uh, we, we may still write to you separately and we appreciate your submission, uh, but that is all the time we had for today. Now for next week's show, we will have a discussion with Aaron Smith and Ankar Gatte about interdependence versus independence. And for future shows, if you'd like, if you have questions you'd like to us to address, um, questions for future Q and A episodes, please send us those questions. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Hit that subscribe button to our channel on YouTube. Uh, click the bell to get notifications when we go live and when we post new recordings. And do the same on whatever platform you're on. If you're on Facebook, uh, please share. Please comment. Um, that is of great help to us uh, in getting the word out. If you have questions or comments about today's episodes or suggestions for future episodes, the email address you should send things to is newideal at einrand.org. Newideal at einrand.org. We read all of your emails and we reply to many of them. And sometimes they give us ideas for episodes or, or we use them on Q&A episodes. Uh, so thank you, Zimowitz, for this discussion today. Um, and uh, Thanks, hope you'll tune in again next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.